it has been a fun morning. Lots of energy, uh, for sure. And uh, I think everyone's just excited for the week to come. And today we're, we're talking about something that I find to be very exciting and, and may just be a bit of a touch of review for you, uh, a great reminder, but it's something that, um, that I think that our current time period uh, may try to knock at and may try to uh, knock us a little bit off of our footing here with what we're going to talk about today. So hopefully we come out of this stronger uh, uh, in God and in Christ because that's the whole point. Um, now, I, I asked this at the first service and then I hesitated because I thought, well, this could be a private question. So you don't necessarily have to raise your hand, just more or less think about it uh, because, um, so the, well, the question, uh, how many of us, and like I said, you don't have to raise your hand, how many of us come from a strong core family unit. And the reason why I hesitated on that is that families are, can be ugly. In families, can, there can be a lot of brokenness in, into that, and so that might be a triggering question. But I, I, I want to talk about this in my life because it's going to be a good example for what we're going to talk about today. Uh, if, you had, if you had the blessing of coming from a strong core family unit, uh, like my, I, I'm, I'm one of four children, the oldest of four. I got three younger sisters and my mom and dad, and we rounded out the Horst clan. That's what we called ourselves. Or my dad would call us Horst Incorporated. And so then when I had children of my own, I like to say in our group text message, Horst part two, you know, the second generation of the Horst clan. Uh, but as we were growing up, it was instilled in me and in us that, um, how many have heard this before? Blood is thicker than Water, right? How many have, have, have grown up with that kind of mantra, that understanding, right? And that was very, that was kind of drilled in. You know, you know, if your sisters or your brother, like they would ever have to protect me, but no, uh, they were, if they, <laughs> if you were ever in trouble, you had each other's back. Like that was important. No one picks on just one person. They're going to pick on everybody if they're going to pick on it. And that really came from even like beyond our core family into our extended families. I'm on my mom's side. I'm an O'Shea. And so that's a whole Irish clan right there that hailed from Queens, New York originally and then settled. And yeah, ooh, exactly. We'll, we'll take it down. Like all of us. That was, that was just kind of the way we were. But that shared value that was instilled in my parents and their families and instilled in me and now instilled in our children was a core value. And it strengthened us and it united us under that. It made us feel like an us. Like we're a part of this, this family unit, this strong community, if you will. How this played out and now, now well, the other question that I would have for you is, is that we're all part of different groups and things like that, and we're all part of this church. The question here is, when it's not a family and it's a variety of people, how do you bring together that same sense of unity and strength? I'm not allowed to go in front of this podium right here. Larissa's going to yell at me because apparently I go off camera if I come here. So you're going to see me do this just a lot. That's free information. But how do you bring, a, how do you bring a, a group of people with different histories, just different uh, families of origin, traditions, and customs, how do you bring them together in a group and unify them under a, a core value? Well, the where I experience this other than church, as I'm going to give away the answer, but where I've experienced this other than church was I uh, was in a fraternity. Uh, you all remember, I talked about that and how, uh, how I became president of the fraternity and, and got to exact some justice on people who were mean to me. But uh, whether or not that was Christian or not, that's besides the point. But anyways, 
I was part of this fraternity. The fraternity was called Pi Kappa Phi. We were Pi Caps. And, and we were, how we came together as a fraternity and how all really fraternities drill this home is you're bringing different people, different ethnicities, different folks, and you have to get them together into a brotherhood, into a family. Well, as pledges, if you ever know what the terminology that is, when you're a pledge, that's your semester where you're not quite in, you're associated with the fraternity, but you're not in. You have to prove yourself in order to get in. And as you go through that pledge time, there is education. There is teaching about the core values of the fraternity and the organization that you are going to be a part of. Well, in our fraternity, one of the core values was unity, that you stuck up for one another, you went to the mat for each other, you were a brotherhood amongst all things. And in our membership book, it was in Greek, uh, the motto of our fraternity was nothing shall tear us asunder, which comes directly from Scripture. Fun fact, a lot of your collegiate fraternities anchor themselves in uh, Christian traditions, which is kind of funny and ironic because of the extracurricular activities that we take part in. But I digress. And me as a, and how they did this, just to give you an image, and this is all free information, I should move along. But how they did this is as a pledge, we had to wear, yellow, our, our colors were blue and gold. We had to wear a gold shirt with letters like this that are printed on with our Greek letters, had to wear khaki shorts, could not wear jean shorts. Apparently jean shorts, when I went to college in 2001, were out of style. And you can imagine my surprise when I had a drawer full of jean shorts and had nothing to wear. Khaki shorts, and then we had to wear these socks, these blue and gold socks that went all the way up to your ankles like that. So everyone knew that you were a pie cat pledge. But that was what was uniting. We were together. We were a band of brothers. We were a fraternity, a unit, united under that core value, and a bunch of other things, too, that were values of, of, of the fraternity. It's what held us together. How does this work in the church? Because is not the church a group, a motley group, of people with different cultures, different ethnicities, different backgrounds, different family origins, different traditions, different thoughts, different reward systems. Did you know right now in our church, there are five generations present all over the age of 18 in this house of the church? Five. Your 18-year-olds, Generation Z, your my age group, the late 30s, 40s, mid-30s to the 40s as millennials. You have your late 40s and late 50s was your Gen Xs. You have your 60s and above are your boomers, and 80s and above are your silent gen. That's five generations of people under one home, and all five of us are rewarded differently, we think differently, we act differently. How do you bring all of this together and unite them under one home? Because a church in Greek is a holy ecclesia, called out ones, called out people, people who are called out of their lives and now set apart as a holy community of people. How does this happen? Sunday school answer? Jesus, Jesus very good. And that's the main point for today. Our main point for today is that our faith in Jesus Christ alone makes us all one in Jesus Christ. Now, who doesn't want that? Sunday school answer. Who doesn't want that unity of believers? The devil. Who said Satan? Someone said Satan like they were the church lady. Yes. No, yes. Yes, the devil doesn't want that. You know, the devil, another word, diablo, means to split and separate. 
That's what he does. He wants to get in and separate and split us apart. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden. The devil came into to Adam and Eve and said, surely God didn't say that, and starts to separate them from the truth to where then they began to come up with their own truth that was kind of like God's, but it was their own, and bad news bears, things happen, and we're all, we're all you know, thrown apart, separated from God. Well, the devil still wants to do that and still works, especially in a community of believers especially in a united group of believers who are reaping the harvest and who are following Christ. He wants to get in there and split it apart. And the best way that he can do that is hold up this and say, did God really say what's in here? Are you sure you understand what he says? So we're going to open up to Acts chapter 15. And this community now that we've been following who were with the Jew Christians and Jew, Jewish people are coming alive to the gospel. And now Gentiles who are not Jewish folks, they're coming alive to the gospel. Things are spreading and the harvest is happening. And oh my goodness, this is fantastic. And then it opens up here in Acts chapter 15 with these words, but some people, some men, small group of folks begin to so in a, did God really say, kind of truth. They bring in a false teaching that is so powerful, it calls Paul and Barnabas away from Antioch and have to go back to Jerusalem to get the answer. What could that be? What could be the thing that begins to tear at the unity of these believers and begin to question everything that they have been taught and everything that they have come into freedom of knowledge about? Well, let's dive in and let's see. We're going to see what that is. The main point today is our faith in Christ makes us one in Christ, right? But before we get there, this passage is going to stir up a wrestling point that we all have to answer, just like these folks had to answer. Are you ready for it? You excited? I see excited faces on Charlie. You're thinking about that euchre night, aren't you? I'm sorry. It's okay, Charlie. It's fine. It's all right. Acts chapter 15. I invite you to open up your Bibles. They're in the back of the pews. You can use your own. Open up your phone. Don't cruise the internet. I'll have Matt shut it down. All the things. Let's open them up to page 1097 to 1098. And let's read what happened here on the strong unity of believers and how it almost came undone. This is called in your Bibles the Jerusalem Council. Real quick before we start. <clears throat> this is um, something that the church does throughout the history, throughout the history of the capital C church. Jerusalem Council is probably one of the first here that is recorded. Whenever something is impacting the church that is causing disunity, that is causing an argument, that is causing a debate on what God really said... Sometimes what they did is they brought together a council. They brought together a, a whole um, uh, group of people, of leaders. This is Siri. She keeps saying she doesn't understand what I'm talking about. I'm pretty sure that's God saying it, but you know, whatever. But you bring together a council of people to debate. Um, uh, an example of this would be the Nicene Creed. Are any of you familiar with the Nicene Creed? It's a creed that we say, usually at the traditional service, we don't say them a lot at the contemporary. It's a statement of faith. And it came into being at the Council of Nicaea. And at the Council of Nicaea, the big thread 
of, of disunity, the, the teaching point was whether or not Jesus truly is equal to uh, the Father, or is Jesus one degree off? And what, what do we do with the Holy Spirit? Is the Holy Spirit equal with the Father and the Son, or does it come from the... What do we do with all of that? So they argued and debated this, and it came close, rather close. Our whole trajectory could have been different if they gave in to their own thoughts and not the thoughts of the Holy Spirit. And that's why in the Nicene Creed we say things, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, as we talk about who Jesus is, because they made it very clear that Jesus is the one true Son of God who is God. And so here at the Jerusalem Council, the same thing happens. There is a false teaching that is bringing them together. And that false teaching we have heard before. It's a struggle bus thing for Jewish Christians. And it has to deal with what do you do with the Gentiles? Do the Gentiles who are not Jewish by birth, do they have to come under our laws and customs in order to be truly saved and cleansed by Jesus? Okay, so this is a struggle point here, and we would have thought that they would have gotten it, because you'll see here from what Peter says, but something happens. Okay, here we go. Let's get into it. Too much time. Acts 15. But some men, circle that if you want, came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Well, Paul and Barnabas had an opinion about that, and they had no small dissension and debate with them, meaning that they had a huge argument. And Paul and Barnabas had some, and some of the others were then appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders about this question. This is not some small journey. Here they are in Antioch, and they have to go to Jerusalem. This is several days. This is not in the days of email where you can fire off an email and, you know, kick butt behind a keyboard and be like, whatever you need to do. No, they had to go and, and travel to go to the apostles, the, the original 12, 13, whatever, had to go there and ask this question. That's how important it was and how many people were not listening to Paul and Barnabas about how Gentiles become saved. So, being sent on their way, verse 3, by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in great detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and it brought great joy to all the brothers. All of these churches that they're meeting with as they go back to Jerusalem, they're ecstatic. They're, they're filled with joy about this great news of the Gentiles coming into the faith. Amen. Thanks be to God. Great job, Paul and Barnabas. Then they get to Jerusalem, it says, and they're welcomed by the church. And the apostles and the elders, they declared all that God had done with them, everyone is happy. What now in verse 5? But some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees. Now, when I first read this, I wanted to give these people the benefit of the doubt. That, that Luke is saying that they are Pharisees, but how great is it that these Pharisees have jumped over and have experienced the freedom that's found in Christ? And these some Pharisees are saying that they have to be, the Gentiles have to be circumcised and come under the law of Moses in order for them to be saved. And I'm thinking that Pharisees, they've given their entire lives to this education, to this tradition, to, just, to this custom. Yes, it's going to be hard for them to lose it, right? And so I give them benefit of the doubt. You go to Galatians chapter 2 and Paul talks about these some people and he kind of has more stern words for them. 
he refers to them as more or less sneak, sneaky people, non-believers who are coming in and intentionally trying to sow in false teaching to rip it all apart. Whatever's the truth may lie in there in the middle between Luke and Paul, but what they are doing is bringing in old life stuff and it's impacting the momentum, the joy, and the freedom that these folks have found in Christ. Because look what it says here, verse 6. The apostles and the elders gathered together to consider the matter. Why are they doing that? Listen, if you've got a bee in your bonnet, I'm not calling a congregational meeting to discuss what that bee is. Just in case you're wondering, that's not going to happen. And yet, the apostles did that. They gathered everyone together and let's say, okay, let's, let's talk about it. So there's something in that teaching about coming under the law of Moses that is still a sticky wicket for them because it gets into them and, they, and I think they, they begin to start to doubt it and they got to consider it. And some people say this is, a great expo- this is a great example of how church should handle conflict, that someone brings in something, let's all debate about it and talk about it. Well, when it's completely against Scripture, you don't need to have that debate, in my opinion. You can be like, that's not what the Bible says, be on your way, thanks be to God. But that's not what they did. They bring it all together and they debate it, which means I think in their minds they're, they're wrestling with this, this piece of information. Well, maybe... I don't know, maybe we should. Maybe they should uh, be circumcised and come under the law of Moses. Now, think about this. If you're a Gentile dude, an adult male who has just received the good news of Jesus and you said, yes, the Lord is my Savior and and you are showing signs of the Holy Spirit and then some muckety-muck comes up to you and says, hey, in order for this to stick, you're going to have to get circumcised. I just, I don't know. I don't see the success of the mission here. I don't see many many people signing up and saying, yes, oh, please me. So it is a bit of a hard sell if you think about it. Yet they debate it. And I'm sure the Gentiles in the background are thinking, I'm out, I'm out. So they gather them together to discuss the matter. Verse 7, and after they had been much debate, Peter, thank you, Peter, a shining moment for him. He stands up and he says to them, my my brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe, have faith. And he's talking about his time with Cornelius. We had three messages about Cornelius. We don't need to rehash that. But that's that Gentile Pentecost where he went to that Roman centurion's house and they came alive to his teaching. While he's teaching, they, they sh- I'm rehashing it. While he's teaching, they, they, they come alive to the gospel and, and the Holy Spirit and it's, a, it's an amazing thing. He recalls that for them. Hey, you've seen this. You've heard my testimony and you know that this is happening by God's hand. Verse eight, and God who knows the heart... Uh, wonderful line in scripture. It appears elsewhere too. God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as, circle that, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke, which is by placing a burden, by placing a system 
on their necks that our fathers and ourselves were not able to bear. He's saying, don't put the law of Moses on these Gentiles. We know that it doesn't work. Why would we do that? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as, circle, they will. My friends, if you ever need a presentation of the gospel in three to four short verses, that's it. He knows the heart. Salvation comes through him and faith in Christ, and it's through Christ that the Holy Spirit comes and comes into their heart and brings them alive and purifies and cleans them. It doesn't have anything to do with their ability or inability to keep the law of Moses. And look at this, verse 12, the assembly, what? They fell silent. Because when you're presented with the hard truths of the gospel, there's nothing to say. And then they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they once again recounted the signs and the wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they had finished speaking, James, the brother of Jesus, he stands up and says, brothers, listen to me. Simon, that's Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to make from them a people from his name. And with the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. I love James here because he takes the tangible evidence that they're seeing in their everyday lives and he brings scripture to it and says, let's make this biblical because now we really can't talk about it, right? And he quotes from the prophet Amos that says, after this, God says, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it. And the remnant of all mankind may seek the Lord. And all of the Gentiles who are called by my name, don't miss that, says the Lord, makes these things known from old. All the Gentiles in whom I have written on their hearts, I have circumcised their hearts, is what Scripture says. I have written on their hearts the law. Those who are called by my name, they get to come in too, as long with Israel and the house of David. So James continues, therefore... My decision is this, my judgment is that we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God, but we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood, meaning the animal sacrifices and eating those animals that have been used for sacrifices and, and, and eating in sacrifice to, to, uh, to another God and things like that. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. At the end here, I, get, I had a little head scratch moment because I was like, well, wait a second, James. Now you're making it sound like they have to. We're not going to hold the circumcision thing over you, but you really do need to follow these, these rules and regulations in order to be, to be clean. Don't go down that way. That's not what he's doing here. You see... Jewish Christians have a shared history. They have a shared culture. They, have, they are under the law. The law of Moses has been a part of who they are. They understand that, right? The Gentiles have a different altogether history and culture. Polytheism, pagan, sacrifices in temples, and in these temples you do sexually immoral things and things like that. And so what James is saying here is we need to loosen them from that old life. They need to see that their faith and freedom in Christ ought to have that heart change to put away idol worship, the things of idol worship, and the things that go along with that. That's what he's doing there. And that's, that's, the, that's for all of us. All of us, when we have freedom in Christ, it 
supposed to change our lives. It's supposed to put off the old self and take on the new, the new life under Christ, that faith in him that makes us all one, right? But before you can get to the unity that we experience in that faith of Christ, we need to wrestle with something here. Just like these people had to wrestle with too, these, these Jewish Christian leaders that had to wrestle. The wrestling point that I, I present to you is this, that if we, if we are saying that our faith in Christ makes us one and, and things, the question is, where is the assurance of your faith anchored? Because what I see here from these apostles, from the gathering of these people, is that their anchor is a little loose. They, they're not necessarily anchored in the true freedom that Peter describes, that faith comes through Christ and that faith through the Holy Spirit has made them clean. They don't need to follow the law of Moses. But before they get that, they, they enter into this weeble-wobbles debate about it. And I think it's because they're anchored in their old lives. It's a very Jewish thing to do. It's a very human thing to do. If you think about Old Testament history, the Jewish people were led out of Egypt, right? They cross the Red Sea. They see major God-ordained things. They get into the wilderness. Things start getting tough. Where do they want to go? Back to Egypt. We want to be enslaved again. At least then we're getting fed, they said. And so that's kind of like our MO as, as people. That's at the core of our sinful humanity. We want to be in charge. We want to control it. We want to do it. And that's why the law of Moses is a sticky wicket because it produces a desire for us to earn the righteousness of God. And when I say the righteousness of God, what I mean is God's purity, his justification, his, his cleanliness of you so that you can be with him. In our minds, we feel like we have to earn that because it doesn't make sense that that would just be freely given. I know me. I know the things that I do against the Lord, the, the sins that trip me up. And thanks be to God, there's Christ because without him, I would be out, right? And so that's what they're wrestling with, that old life of you have to earn it. You have to do things in order to keep and earn God's favor. And that's the, the, the seesaw of the Old Testament. If you remember, this is review. The, the, the law was given to Moses, the Ten Commandments, and these were the conditions. If you kept the Ten Commandments, then God blessed you. And you were his people, and he was your God. And he gave you land and prosperity and, and wealth and all, all the things. Yay, woo, wonderful. And then if you break even just one part of that law, if you just become a lawbreaker as, as a person, as a society, then curses befall upon you. And everything that was blessed is now cursed. You won't be his people. He won't be your God. You won't have a land. You'll be exiled. You'll be kicked out. Be gone. The wrath of the Lord. And that's the seesaw of the Old Testament. It's fantastic, isn't it? <laughs> right? They, these some people who want to water down the truth of the freedom found in Christ through faith. They want to bring people back to that seesaw. To you, you have to kind of earn it to get it. And they miss out on this truth of the Ten Commandments and the Law of Moses. The Ten Commandments, as we now have discovered through Christ's ministry, was given to teach us the righteousness of God, things that God blesses and what he wants for his creation to follow and do. But it also sets up the 
overwhelming understanding that we cannot keep it ourselves. These Ten Commandments are here to draw people to their knees, to realize that they will never, ever be able to keep them all and to earn God's favor because of the brokenness and the sinfulness in their lives. Do you understand that as well as a Christ follower? Where's your faith anchored in? Is it anchored in works? Is it anchored in your volunteerism and how many committees you serve on at church and all your good intentions and all the good things that you do? Is it anchored in a political leader, dare I say, or a political party? If it's in any of those things, your anchor is loose. And you give, a, you give a window of opportunity for the evil one to come in and say, ah, did God really say that it was just faith in Christ alone? Surely you don't believe that. Surely you have to realize that you need to do something in order to earn God's favor. This is what these some people are trapped in and shackled in. They're shackled under this understanding. And they are trying to rip the community apart by making sure that everyone follows this. And in so doing, they're going to block the Gentiles out. I know I joked about it, but I don't think a lot of Gentile dudes are going to sign up for that. And I don't think that 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 message is going to preach with them that they have to earn. They've just been told about the freedom, and now you're putting these conditions on it. And and I think that's what they want. You're, You're here, and we're here. And that's the way that it should be. We're God's chosen, not you. Obviously, God has lost his mind here. And so that brings me to our, our, our main point. Faith in Christ alone makes us all one in Christ. And if we truly, truly believe that, if we truly stand on that as bedrock, solid gold truth, then we have to understand that what these Jew, Jewish Pharisee Christians are trying to do in ripping apart this unity and creating another, that that has no place in the house of the Lord. For Amos himself, as James said, the prophet Amos has said that God's going to rebuild it all and he's going to open it up. And those in whom he has called, no matter if they're Jewish or if they're Gentile, are going to come home with him. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ unites us together. The thing that unites us and brings us all under the house of the Lord. Even, even if people won't receive that good news, this is what unites us together. See, we often forget that when we come into this faith and in this freedom, that it is our call, the call in our life is to send this out to wherever we go, to whomever comes into our path. And sometimes we get hung up and we judge those people in thinking, ah, I don't know if they're truly going to respond to this. And therefore, we don't necessarily take that time to share and invest. But that's not for ours to judge. Ours is just to share it because faith in him brings us all together. The passage today also teaches us that, that just as these Jewish folks are arguing over the values of the laws of Moses and how they have to turn from that, that the Gentiles too have to turn from their old pagan ways as I have explained. And it sits on this groundbreaking truth, the power of just as. That as, 
as we have seen with Jewish Christians who have turned from their old ways and have repented, they've come under this freedom of Christ. And the same thing is happening with the Gentiles too. And that what God is doing is bringing all these people of different cultures, different lifestyles, different ethnicities, and social groups, and bringing them together under their true identity, which is that of Jesus Christ. Paul in Galatians 2 says it like this in terms of what is happening. Galatians 2, verses 15 through 21. Listen to what he says. He says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not, Gentile, uh, and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not made right, justified, by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ alone. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified, made right by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one's going to be justified. But if in our endeavor to be made right, justified in Christ, that we are found to be sinners, then the question is, is Christ a servant of sin? Well, certainly not, says Paul. But if I rebuild what I tore down, if I try to rebuild my old life and follow that again, that which has been torn down by Christ, then I become a transgressor. For though through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God, I have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's bring this home. What Paul is saying here in Galatians and what we see back here in Acts 15 is that if they give in to the some people and believe what they are saying and make this a standard that you have to earn the favor and grace of Christ through keeping the law of Moses, they rebuild that what Christ has been crucified for. And every time that we do this in our lives and start to rebuild our old system, our old lives that we've put aside when we've, when we've stepped into the faith of Christ and we start shackling ourselves up on the things that we know and the things that we control, then we nullify. We make light of. We, we might as well not even say that Jesus was crucified because when we have faith in Christ and believe in him, Paul says, we too were crucified. The old selves are gone, and now the new lives. My friends, you are called out ones, holy and loved by God. Your old self, your old traditions, your old customs, all that stuff is old. You've taken on now the faith of Christ, this new life, which unites each and every one in this room together whether you are Jew or Gentile, whether you are black, white, Asian, Mexican, whatever ethnicity you want to put in there, we all come together under this house, under the Lord, equal in the faith of Christ, equal in our sins that separate us, and equal in the grace that we received. Do you believe that? Because if you do, it needs to show up in your lives. Faith in Christ alone makes us all one in Christ. Let's pray. Where's your faith anchored in? Let that be a, a wrestling point for you this week. 
Just a reminder of how easy it is to have that anchor get loosed by old ways of thinking, by former ways in which you have lived. Paul often says, that's who you were. That's not who you are. You are made right by your faith in Jesus Christ alone, God's one and only Son, in whom he sent to save the world through his death and resurrection on the cross. And he says, my my yoke is easy, my burden is light. You follow me. You put your faith in me, and it will make you clean. And there will be a day in which we will all be gathered together, every one of us who have done that, at his table, united in that one song that says, Hallelujah, praise be to God the Father. Till that day, get as many as you can to join with you and share with him that great news. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all God's people said, Amen. Have a great weekend, everybody.